Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, why did you get kicked out of the Grey Council? Well, for me, I couldn't uh, decide on whether it was spelled with an E or an A. I thought it was a Council of Jean Greys and kept showing up in my Dark Phoenix costume and nobody would take me seriously. So yeah, tonight, uh, as our uh, question of the episode might tell you, we are going to be covering episodes 10 and 11 of season 2, uh, Gropos, and All Alone in the Night. Alright, so let's see, who has Gropos here? Jude? Oh yes, because it's a Franklin episode. Jude? It's a double Franklin episode, so <laughs> buckle the fuck up. We, we have, if this is going to hit critical bass, we might have to eject the reactor here on the pod. <laughs> We're just building towards a critical mass. Right. Uh, take us away. All right. <clears throat> oh, get outside. my voice ready here for this marathon. Okay. So the episode begins with Ivanova in CNC enjoying a bit of peace and quiet for once when she makes the surprisingly rookie mistake of saying so out loud. Uh, I really would have thought that Ivanova, of all people, would have known better. But Corwin, credited in this episode as tech number one, he doesn't even have a name at this point, slowly showing some early promise, though, takes the first shot by reminding her that there is no night in space and time is a meaningless concept. <laughs> Sophistry aside, his reminder heralds larger shatterings of Ivanova's peace as the jump gate opens to reveal a task force of Earth Force ships led by the hilariously dated reference of the EAS Schwarzkopf. Why anyone thought that that name would stick around for four centuries when I doubt anyone under the age of 30 has heard the name Storm and Norman. Uh, I don't know, but there you have it. Commanding this group is General Richard Franklin, wielding an actual goddamn swagger stick. I kid you not. I had to Google this shit. This stick is essentially a wooden dick that military leaders carry so that other military men will recognize that they have the biggest dick. Now, I do want to interject here. There are yes. multiple swagger sticks on display in this episode. Oh, yeah. Plug carries one, too. Uh, putting aside the fact that there's a character named Plug, we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah. We've got a lot of bridges to burn here. Yeah. Uh, I love the costuming choice to give Franklin one of these little archaic wooden military dicks. I think it is super on point for his characterization, and I'm into it. Uh, we can talk about that later. Uh, but it certainly explains an awful lot about Stephen Franklin that his dad walks around with a little stick that just tells other military men, I've got the biggest dick in the room. That it does. I mean, anyway, that's how this summary is going to go. So buckle up. Sheridan meets him at the docks and plays little good soldier saluting smartly. Maybe he's intimidated by the stick, but then is dismayed to learn that daddy Franklin. Yes. That's how we're going to be referring to the general this episode. Daddy Franklin. This. I hate this. Uh, wants to billet 25,000 troops on the station for a few days. 
That's 10% of the station's population with no warning. I don't think there's any culture in which that is not a dick move. Ivanova and Garibaldi, meanwhile, uh, are chatting about how fucked they all are, and Sheridan soon joins them as they walk down the hall towards a meeting the next morning. Garibaldi has the opinion that this means that someone in Earth Force has it out for them, and that this is just a stupid idea. He's overheard by Daddy Franklin, who asks, after introductions, if he's related to an Alfredo Garibaldi, <laughs> who served with him during the Dilgar War. When Garibaldi confirms that, yes, that was his father, Daddy Franklin snaps back with, so much for genetics. Two things. One, that's a harsh fucking burn for a guy you met eight seconds ago just because he's convinced that your shitty plan that is screwing his station, undeniably, is shitty. Two, Alfredo Garibaldi is the worst name this show has come up with in a long list of bad names. <laughs> it sounds like a pasta dish at the Olive Garden that is only offered during the bottomless pasta specials that is composed of the leftovers from the previous night's pasta reheated into a big bowl and just slopped together. Yeah, I'll take the Alfredo Garibaldi with a side of botulism. I'm a fan of the breadsticks personally and the super salad. Yeah. Well, who doesn't? Everybody loves the breadsticks. Nobody wants the Alfredo Garibaldi. Yeah. Like, just get your <laughs> That's why it exists. You. Anyway. Okay. So we finally get the deets on what the fuck is going on here. Uh, there's a planet called Actor, Chalasin, blah, blah. Nobody cares. It's completely fucking unimportant what they're doing here. The only thing that you need to remember is that the guy playing Daddy Franklin can't pronounce the word triumvirate and that they're walking into a fucking slaughterhouse. Uh, Sheridan, who had some contact with the Shalassadassadans when he was commanding the Agamemnon, <laughs> is familiar with this planet, and he's fucking flabbergasted at the idea that they're going to just drop 25,000 troops onto this planet and take it. He's literally, this is actually a really great little acting moment here, because Boxlitner plays this legitimately kind of horrified. Like, he gets pale and looks really, like, freaked at the idea, like, you're going to fucking do what? I like that part. Daddy Franklin tries to cheer everyone up by telling them, hey, don't worry about it, I've got presents for you. I'm going to retrofit your space station with the latest and greatest in military uh, defense capabilities. Looking like a mom who's just given her kid a box of tidy-whitey underwear and is expecting to be thanked on Christmas morning, uh, he looks somewhat crestfallen when Sheridan... Uh, declines to thank him and instead is like, but we're a peaceful space station. Why do we need a bunch of fucking giant guns and missiles? Of course, uh, I'll, I'll interject and remind everybody about the two times thus far up to where Justin has watched that those guns have been used. Yeah, I'm going to point out that I'm with Daddy Franklin on this one. B5 needs more guns. All the guns. All the guns. Put them I everywhere. I point out that up until the point that Justin has watched, those guns have almost exclusively been used on Earth ships. <laughs> I do find... Okay, that's so a, like... That's a good point. I do point. find it like, hilarious that like... Okay, so Franklin looks like... It's not that he's been gifted underwear. It's like he's been gifted a laundry hamper for Christmas. Like, yeah. That's the level of like, just like... like It's like, okay, I'm at least going to get these out of this. It's like... No, this is just, you've been given a new laundry hamper for Christmas. That is that is how Sheridan reacts to this. However, yeah. pretty much every alien race does not give a fuck that Babylon 5 is a neutral port of call. Yeah. Like, or at least, yeah. <laughs> and are like, 
Like the Minbari have like showed up on this doorstep. Like at like you know the Minbari have nearly shot at the station. The Centauri are going to later this season. Um, or going that's the to... first time the guns to get used. Yeah, yeah, and like it's in like. It, yeah. I think it's gonna be. I think we need to go back at like the end of season five and figure out who hasn't taken a pot shot at Babylon Five <laughs> over the course of the show's run. I don't think there's any point in that. I think everybody does. Uh, like, I think but, the Nards maybe have it yet. I'd have to check, but yes. Uh, the the closest we've had is the um, accident in the docks, and by any means necessary. Yeah. So yes, your point is really well raised, though. That I think these guns thus far. The best evidence they have for the usefulness of these guns is that they've shot at Earth Force ships a bunch so far. So yeah. that's funny. Um, his justification is that the Narn and Centauri civil war is going to rip the galaxy apart and they need B5 to be well armed, which not wrong, super on point, good justification. But I think it's hilarious that Sheridan is just like completely unenthused about these weapon systems. Um, he gets over it, though, and they get through the rest of the meeting. Uh, the final fun revelation of this meeting is that none of the soldiers know that they're heading for this bloodbath. They all think they're going to a reinforcement posting on Io, which is like apparently like a nanny camp. Uh, so that's cool. Nice. Nobody knows what's going on. Um, yeah. Yikes. Uh-oh. Next, Keffer. What? Keffer has plot? Outside of a ship? What Warner Brothers executive demanded this? Keffer, whistling jauntily to himself as he heads to his quarters, uh, opens the door and discovers he has new roommates. Two soldiers, a very large individual and a very small one, are using his quarters as a billet. Uh, the larger of the two, named Large, apparently the writers took a day off there, uh, is smoking a cigar and telling war stories to the younger named Yang. Large offers him a nipper, which is, I fucking shit you not, a Capri Sun. <laughs> and uh, tries to introduces himself. Keffer is not into it. As a socially crippled introvert, I feel you, Keffer. Nonetheless, he makes friends with his new bunkmates by almost getting into a fight with Large and then saying he will he he's going to go grab a ladder and come up and talk to him about it, which is actually a legitimately fucking hilarious line because the guy who plays Keffer is like a, a head and a half shorter than the guy who plays Large. And the, yeah. the moment is played really nicely. So, uh, and it's then the nice guy who plays scene. Large just like loses it, just cracks up. So yeah, he sticks a cigar in Keffer's mouth and sits him down and keeps telling him a story about how he murdered a bunch of Minbari in the last war. Cool, super fun. Meanwhile, Keffer isn't the only one with uninvited guests. Daddy Franklin is pacing around the reprobate Franklin's quarters, transparently inspecting everything, while the latter asks questions about family and pours them drinks. Daddy Franklin gets in about two judgments and one snarky remark about calling home in the space of 15 seconds, which is good work, high-quality, high-speed work there for judgmental <laughs> bullshit from a parent, all before reprobate gets a chance to hand him a glass of juice which Daddy Franklin nearly turns away on the grounds that he likes orange juice, good earth orange juice, and doesn't drink no filthy alien fruit juice. Reprobate assures him that he will like it. Yes, I'm going to be calling Stephen Franklin the Reprobate Franklin for this episode, so you can just get on board with that too. <laughs> uh, 
Daddy Franklin drinks the juice and does like it, and they proceed to try and talk. Um, it's clear that reprobate Franklin is concerned about his father uh, and about what's going on with all these troops. Uh, but their conversation jumps the rails about two seconds in uh, when it becomes a... When uh, Daddy Franklin asks about, about uh, the younger Franklin's work and then immediately segues that into, I can get you a job back on Earth, away from these filthy aliens. Why don't you build bioweapons instead like a good, honest Earth doctor? Um, it's a little insane, slash not at all insane, that this is where he came from. Like, like the, the friend you have who's super, super liberal hippie in college, and then you go home with them for Christmas, and you find out that their parents are like members of the, like, the local GOP committee, and you're like, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. Rebellion. Daddy Franklin storms out, and we cut to the med lab, where reprobate Franklin is angrily playing with beakers. Ivanova leads in the drill sergeant, whose name, I swear to God, is named Plug. He's <laughs> Drill Sergeant Plug. The, whoever wrote this episode was fucking phoning it in. It's Larry Dottilio. I forgot to mention that at the top. <laughs> I didn't say who wrote this piece. of Larry Dottilio is better than the names in this episode. I'm just saying. Plug leads in a bunch of soldiers to be builded in the firmary. Uh, the reprobate doctor nearly starts a fight with Ivanova about it till she questions him, and they have a nice chat about shitty fathers, which I really like. This moment is really good, and I actually kind of resent this episode in a few places because they give the guy who plays Stephen like, some really good work to do, and you know how much I hate Franklin. And so I sort of resent like the good bits here that he has with Ivanova where they're talking about fathers and like not losing out on chances. Anyway, Ivanova counsels him to talk to his father before it's too late and almost spills the beans about them not going to IO. They agree to have a further conversation about it over drinks later that night. They meet up in the Zocalo and we get a nice further expansion of background on his childhood growing up with a general father, always being concerned about his father not coming back from the war, what it was like having functionally a drill sergeant instead of a father, things like that. Um, and it's really interesting uh, to, to get that that point of view of, of the doctor's childhood. Elsewhere on the Zocalo, this scene's gross, uh, Delenn and Garibaldi are discussing Babylon 5 being a place of peace. Uh, suddenly full of soldiers and the ongoing war between the Narn and the Centauri. Garibaldi is drawn away by a bar, the sounds of a bar fight and Delenn is cornered uh, by a group of soldiers led by a, uh, a particularly like stereotypically racist looking, su southern racist looking one. Yeah, he's a he's a skinhead looking dude. Yeah, yeah. He, he reminds me, uh, like he's sort of like a Yul Brynner ringer. Yeah. If you went to Central Casting and said, I need someone to play a space racist, this is the kind of person they would send over. And they get like two more of these over the course of the show. He immediately corners Delenn and asks her, what are you? Is very angry that she's a Minbari with hair and is getting ready to assault her when another soldier, a woman, leaps in, tells Delenn to book it, and then proceeds to beat the living crap out of him and his two friends, which is pretty satisfying. 
a big old fight breaks out and she gets some good licks in, but apparently she takes some fairly serious head trauma and we'll see more about that in a minute. Delenn runs back to Garibaldi and grabs Garibaldi who returns to the scene of the, of the violence just as Plug is about to throw all four of them into the brig and asks them, asks the drill sergeant to just let them all go. The woman, whose name it transpires as Dodger, follows Garibaldi as he leaves to thank him for keeping her out of the brig and shows transparent sexual interest in Garibaldi, which can only be interpreted, as I implied, as a sign of, of some sort of head trauma incurred in the fight. Nobody has offered her any medical assistance following the fight, so I'm assuming it's a concussion of some kind. I mean, I mean, who... Who in their right mind would look at Garibaldi walking away and say, cute butt? This is I what mean, I'm saying. God, this is, it was written by a straight man. That's, that's the thing, is that we know it. <laughs> yeah. I, I have thoughts about Dodger. We will get to them later. Yeah. Uh, in Sheridan's office, he and Daddy Franklin are going over the plan. Daddy Franklin is finally figuring out how fucked he is, because surprise, the Salasadasadasadans lied, and it turns out that the easy assault he was promised is going to be a bloodbath. Nonetheless, he refuses to back down as the conquering of this planet is politically important. Uh, his son shows up, and Sheridan cannot possibly look more uncomfortable as he tries to crawl into a corner of the set, but no, <laughs> no escapes, Sheridan. The fight that occurs here is very brief, and uh, basically, reprobate Franklin tries to apologize, uh, tries to explain what happened the previous evening to cause their fight, and Daddy Franklin calls him a coward and a shithead, and the reprobate Franklin offers an extremely sarcastic salute and storms off, leaving uh, Sheridan looking just about as awkward and cringe as any human being on television has ever looked. It's the most perfect depiction of someone wishing they could just sink into the ground and disappear as I've ever seen. It's very good. Sheridan wishes that he was still a Star Fury pilot so he could just eject. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he and Daddy Franklin talk about war and fathers and he has an extremely good line about war, which we'll talk about further uh, in, the, in the discussion. Believe it or not, this is not the discussion of the episode. I'm still doing the summary. <laughs> We then go back to Dodger, who apparently still has not received medical attention because she has yet again tracked down Garibaldi. Lou plays wingman, because apparently he's a sadist, and tells Garibaldi that he can cover so, he can, so that Garibaldi can show Dodger around the station. What does she want to see, you ask? A good restaurant and then his quarters. <laughs> sure enough... We cut to them entering his quarters in the dark, making out. This scene, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie to you guys. I could not make myself watch this scene. I fast forwarded straight through to the end where Garibaldi blows it, because that's the part I like. She is excited about the bed, which is valid, and ignores the Daffy Duck poster, which is further signs <laughs> of traumatic brain injury. Uh, and then Garibaldi is like, "My last girlfriend left me for a rich Martian." Who hasn't heard that one? Uh, so I've got some issues about girls and she's like, I just want to get laid, man. What's wrong with you? Like, fuck off. I think I might die some someday very soon. So don't be a shithead. And then she leaves. The scene is extremely awkward and weird. And, uh, the, 
the image of Garibaldi sitting there with his shirt half open haunts me to this day. I mean, <laughs> Dodger, you get to at least dodge one bullet in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! <laughs> Damn! Wow. This is a spicy take right there. Spicy takes, Justin. Um, um all right. Well, well, I mean, I it's it's an honest reaction to just like, you know, everything seems to be going for like, you know, a one night stand, and then he's like, let's talk about my past relationships. And she's just like, fuck you. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's like um, Garibaldi gets his shirt like halfway off and he's like, a woman must be my new therapist. Yeah. Okay, let's get through this. Uh, I resent the next part. Daddy Franklin goes to see reprobate Franklin. And what follows is a well-acted and well-written scene involving Stephen Franklin. And he doesn't do anything gross. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Uh, I would prefer that the wholesome Stephen Franklin content be kept to an absolute minimum. Uh, but anyone who has a father in the military or, you know, issues with their dad probably, you know, has some feelings about some of these scenes with Franklin and his dad. And this scene in particular, uh, I think was really well done. Uh, Franklin has a lot of baggage about his dad being in the military and being scared of his dad dying and a lot of like pent up shit about that. And they do really well with that scene. And I'd prefer, frankly, he just was never that wholesome or honest. Again, uh, I'm much more comfortable with Franklin being uh degenerate because that's what he is every, all the other times and him acting like a real human is uh weird and unsettling to me. Uh, finally, we rejoin Keffer in the casino with Large and Yang. We learn that Large is a veteran with 30 years in, but Keffer is new, or but Yang is new. Keffer seems to have grown to like his new roommates as they're having a pretty good time. Elsewhere in the casino, Dodger still inexplicably feels drawn to Garibaldi and finds him yet again, apologizes to, to him is fucking insane for blowing up at him and says she's afraid she doesn't think they're going to io and she's scared meanwhile keffer manages to accidentally start a brawl by knocking over the drink of the racist bald guy who attacked delenn there's a big brawl stuff happens it's completely unimportant and doesn't end until daddy franklin shows up with plug and sheridan to tell them that it's time to board their ships and get the fuck out of there Everyone has a nice goodbye. Keffer waves to his friends. Garibaldi gets a completely disgusting kiss that I definitely skipped. <laughs> and the Franklins share a wholesome hug. The episode closes with everyone on the Zocalo watching an ISN report uh, taken on Actor about the fighting. An interview with Daddy Franklin is shown to the relief of the reprobate Franklin, while Garibaldi and Keffer look over the list of casualties with grave faces. The last scene is a slow pan over the silent battlefield. Dodger, Yang, Large, and the racist shitwheel are all among the dead. Finn. Yep. In my defense, there's no B-plot in this episode. It's just one marathon fucking plot. And all of it is dunkable, which is sort of my meat and potatoes. So there's a reason why that one went long. So... First of all, I want to get this out of the way. There is a undercurrent between everybody who's like... No, it's pretty much just the asshole infantry people who 
like and and it's only like the grunts who are like weirdly have weird animosity towards the spacers and earth force there is no reason given for this beyond trope yeah there there is um like the actual characters who are the various frontline shoulders beyond the skinhead are like they're all good characters it's just yeah. this weird like all of them have to have like let's make jokes about flyboys despite the fact that they get to fly around in cool spaceships <laughs> yeah my sense is larry detilio's never met anyone in the military in his life that's that's fine honestly i i which is weird because like which is, it's yeah it's funny because some of the writing on this is really good like the the stuff with uh franklin and his father some of those bits are extremely good yeah my sense is that there's larry detilio air quotes wrote this episode because but there's some there's a lot of hands in it because this episode really feels like there's at least two maybe three voices in it yeah but it's 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 a little bit all over the place yeah there's the there's a voice of whoever thought that garibaldi was sexually desirable so I want to talk about I actually want to talk about Dodger because like I think she is an interesting yeah. character who we we have not seen the archetype for in B54 which is a woman who gets to claim sexual agency in this show. Oh, that's gross and weird that that's true. Like like uh, like okay, yeah. so there, okay, well there is there is Catherine Sakai who we And we, Ivanova. No, but like, Ivanova doesn't Ivana, Ivana hasn't slept with anybody in the show yet, has she? I don't know. Or at least has she? we have not gotten confirmation. We we well, we, maybe she makes some implications. Talia. Yeah, it, we can maybe make some implications about Talia. But. No, it, it, yeah, I think it was implied that she might have with one of her with her ex husband, or was thinking about it. But and but yeah, I think maybe Talia is the only one. Maybe. Oh, I hate this. Talia is basically constantly victimizing the show in a way that is very invasive. But it's like, like maybe apart from like Catherine Sakai, like Dodger is the only woman who like gets to say on screen, like, yeah, I just want to get fucked. <laughs> Which is, well, oh, well, I, mean, I, I, wa- I want to make one. I, I, I would okay. like to suggest one point of clarification there. Dodger would definitely fuck Garibaldi, not get fucked by Garibaldi. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, Dodger has ext- Dodger has some very good top energy in this. And uh, yeah, um, I'm but, just saying. Yeah. So, but yeah, like it, it's very weird because I was like, oh, hey, I like her. She she's a like she is this weird fun character, but like unfortunately, the object of her desires has to be Garibaldi. <laughs> Like, why can't this be, why can't this be, why can't this be Keffer? Why can't she just, like, get a thing for Keffer? And, like, Keffer could be weird and awkward and cute. I think we can all, we can all fantasize about the alternate reality in which she uh, has a thing for Jakar. <laughs> that would be good. I don't watch yeah, that. Like, like, it's just, it's unfortunate that she gets to, she gets to express this, and Garibaldi's just like, a woman showing attention to me better, better dump all my trauma on her, which, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Michael. So I, I have mixed feelings about Dodger. I, I like the points that you're making that, you know, she's, um, 
Oh, she she's got yeah, sexual agency, etc. However, I feel like she's playing like they play so hard into a like very specific um ninety well, I mean it still is around now, but especially in the nineties trope of like that she's you put her into Buffy the Vampire Slayer and she's Faith. Um, like a clone, practically. Yeah. Um, like she it it's fine because she's, you know, a one-off character in one mm-hmm. episode, but like it's the to a T, the like tough girl who fucks. Uh you're like the 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 tough tomboy who fucks. Mm-hmm. Um which I I have mixed feelings about that particular trope. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where it's like it's maybe a thing where it's like this was still I think this was this was a relatively new character archetype in 1995. So like I'm I'm willing to give it a little bit more agency than it would or a little bit more leeway than I would for a show that came out like 10 years later. Um fair. Especially for like a one-off character like this. Yeah. Um uh yeah, I kind of think it's like a but, minus 5 for bad trope plus 10 for finally being a woman with sexual agency on this dumb show. So one of the things I think, I think one of the reasons why we haven't had a lot of women with sexual agency is that there's not a lot of sex on the show for, for all that, like there's a lot of sex references and sex jokes. And certainly we make a lot of sex jokes. And there's a lot of horny Um, energy on the show. But there's not a lot of sex other than except like, Jakar. Except Jakar. Jakar is like ninety percent of the fuck on this show. Yeah, yeah. That's my boy. I'm so proud right now. And unfortunately, Franklin it makes up at least five, at least half of the remaining ten percent. Yeah, like eight percent of the remaining horde on the show is Franklin, and it is very cursed for that reason. Um, I this is one of those things that it's like. <laughs> This might be a thing to discuss in, like, another episode, but, like, we don't get episodes where, like, people have one-episode flings. Yeah. Like, those are, yeah. that's not a common thing. Like, Sheridan hasn't, like, gotten a crush on something. But I Sheridan has a wife thing to get over. God, Sheridan's a wife guy. I mean, he's a dad. Uh, I mean, he's, Sher- he's a Sheridan dad. currently has, I mean, Sheridan just has, like, the Delenn googly eyes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he gets, he gets, yeah, I mean, what, Delenn hatches on what like his third day on the station or something like that yeah yeah or like a couple of weeks in or something he gets whammied by delenn like his third episode so he has no time he has no time to 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 go look anywhere else yeah he's no kirk let's put it like that yeah no jakar is the kirk no no (laughs) shame on you jakar would eat kirk he would eat him. He would sing a little song while he roasted him and eat, and ate him. So something I was confused about when I first watched the episode was you don't ever see them on screen. So I had no idea who the Shalasses were. Um, mm-hmm. th- yeah. I, I want to th- somebody who follows my tweet threads, uh, Dragon Cobalt, who was able to provide that they are, in fact, a human offshoot species. Really? Uh, Interesting. They, they are a group of humans who left Earth, colonized a 
non-Earth-like world and did some, like, serious genetic modifications themselves and got really into body modding. Wild. Like, this has so to be out of the RPG book or something, because the official, the official wiki just says they're a civilization from the planet Actor. It doesn't say anything about uh, that. But that's interesting that from the novels or something like that. It's from like the expanded stuff, but apparently they That's are cool. humans. And like, from what I understand, they are, they have like modded themselves. So they have dark skin with luminescent tattoos. That's cool. Wild. Yeah. Um, and they were, they're apparently like, they've, they've only been away from earth from like a hundred years because I was very like, it seems very weird that earth would get involved with the foreign war. Yeah. Yeah. That, and that makes it make a lot more sense is that, you know, that if, if Earth is trying to consolidate its colonies at this point, then mm-hmm. um, this whole thing makes more sense in that context. Yeah. Yeah, which was, it was just interesting thing. Like, this is something that I'm like, oh, hey, I learned about it. Uh, we also get to see, like, some, I don't want to say cool, but we get some looks at, like, what Earth, uh, like, what, what Earth forces like ground assault vehicles look like. They really just look like Valkyries from Warhammer 40k. Um, they really do. They, they're they're just like that's really what they are. I don't know. What oh the no, this is, is going to feed into Silver's question from the end of season one. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got like two months. To, we've got like five months to burn through that, so we'll we'll get the delay delaying action there. But yeah, this, it's like we and we also get like. The war, the obligatory war is hell, like Panover, where the four people who get lines in this episode die. Yep. Yeah. I I think something that's interesting about this show is that for a show that has protagonists who are all in the military, it's not a particularly pro-military, pro-war, etc. No. Show. Especially not pro-war, but it's even not particularly pro-military the way that one might expect. Yeah. No, definitely not. It's the characters are all shown to have a realistic reason to be in the military. And they are all like the you know, the reasons why military choices are made are all shown to be given thoughtful reasons but the consequences of the of being a soldier and be going to war are always given really center stage a lot of the time uh this quote that this line that sheridan has in his scene where he's talking to daddy franklin and he says there's only one truth in war people die and he's like you can dress it up all you want but that's that's what we do. We just, and then we have to, ju- you know, hope that the reasons justify what what's been done. Like that's that's a a bold statement to attach to a guy who's like a career military officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Sheridan, I feel like is particularly interesting. I think this is something that we'll probably talk about in the the. Um, second half of this episode with All Alone in the Night. But he really, like, he comes across initially as the jarhead, but he really isn't. Like, that Mm-mm. he... Yeah. My impression has always been that he joined the military because it was one of his best options for exploration 
yeah, and such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was. I think it's funny that we talked about this several times. That Sheridan is a guy who has a, a thoroughly unearned reputation for being a like master military oorah guy because he's a lifer. He's a, a captain and because he destroyed the Black Star when really he's a big nerd who wanted to explore deep space. And so he climbed the ranks to be the right high enough to let him explore deep space. And then a war happened and he got clever about figuring out how to destroy these ships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He got clever about figuring out how to destroy one of them. Yeah. One ship in a way that would be considered a war crime under any other circumstance if it weren't for the fact that, like, their planet was about to be exterminated. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And the, But the fact that, like, nobody looks past the fact that, like, oh, he destroyed the ship. He must be some, like, hardened warrior. And he's like, I collect conspiracies. Like, he's this big dweeb. He's not... He I I think we should save some of this discussion for the next the next half of this with uh, with Haig's visit. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to see General Haig in All Alone the Night. Yeah. Anyway, my my point was just that like it's I like that they nuance what it means to be a soldier and what war means to these people. And they've, they've, they, they do that in the first season and they do it all the way through. And I think that that's part of what makes Babylon 5 a really special show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one thing I wanted to call out is I think Daddy Franklin is like transparently xenophobic. Like yeah. doesn't even pretend. Like he's straight up xenophobic. It's like surprising slash not at all surprising that mm-hmm. Stephen Franklin grows up to be this like xenobiologist I mean, it literally is like a, just a straight opposite reaction, rebellion against your parents bullshit Yeah, to grow up to be that way. I think, I think it also does explain perhaps some of the kind of toxic masculinity stuff that uh, mm-hmm. Franklin has going on, though. Yeah, for because sure. Because I think he's still, he still absorbed some of that. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely modeling his dad's like bullshit macho behaviors when it comes to being around women yeah i have two weird factoids oh yeah yeah those are good those are good factoids uh the first is that according to jms daddy franklin sided with president clark during the civil war uh no surprise there uh and he considered bringing him back to fuck with dr franklin talk about a missed opportunity i would have loved to have seen that yeah uh Second, I love that there is a fucking giant row of those slime toys that you got in the museum, in museum gift shops in the 90s that were like a cylinder with a with a divider in the middle with a hole in it. And it had like colored, tr- clear, clear slime in it. So you would just turn it over and it would just like flow through to the other side and you turn it over. Oh, yeah. The set dressing people in Babylon 5 must have spent so much money at the discovery channel store at the mall closest to the to the babylon 5 set because so many so much of the shit on these sets is stuff that i remember seeing in the malls in like the late 90s at like the science channel store or at like any of these like science museum stores 
now you've got me remembering back when, you know, malls with a science store were a thing. Right? I think we just dated ourselves. Fuck. <laughs> oh, man. I, used to, I had so much fun in those things as a kid. Me too, right? Meanwhile, Justin stares at us blankly. Oh, no, I, re- I remember these. It's just, I don't have, like, this is when I, like, I remember these. I just don't have as many, like, formed memories because my brain is mush. Gotcha. Um, and was not as well formed back free mumble cough. Um, <laughs> so overall, I think relatively good episode. Um, again, the swagger sticks are such a good choice. And yes, and, absolutely. Like it also, it, and um, I also want to say that it's like the, it's pretty like if, if, if you go ahead and watch this episode, listeners, it is very clear that like a lot of the camera work and like a lot of the, aesthetic of the actual invasion is being pulled from desert storm mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i'll say that it's it's always been a hard episode for me to re-watch um just because so watching it the first time like you know you know that this whole invasion is bad news but you can kind of hold that hope that dodger and large and yang will all make it um but re-watching it like knowing that the three of them are just fucking doomed um, mm-hmm. makes it a rough watch. If you would like a fan fiction, dear listeners, where Dodger, Yang, and Large survive, um, I will recommend Dragon Cobalt, who I mentioned earlier in the show's uh, ongoing quest fic co-pilots, uh, where, which specifically involves Dodger, Large, and Yang surviving. It Beautiful. is a, it is like the one like major timeline convergence from main Babylon five. Beautiful. That's some, that's some excellent fix it fic right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got a second episode here. Um, it's a direct quote from the uh, opening monologue. Yes. We have season two, episode 11, all alone in the night written by JMS and directed by Mario DeLeo. Uh, So for this episode, we start not with someone arriving at the station, but with someone leaving. Delenn has been summoned to meet with the Grey Council, who are pissed that she refused to lead the council and went through the transformation, hybridization, cocoon something machine uh, without their permission. Lanier takes some initiative and insists on joining her. He, however, must wait outside the council chamber while she's inside. Sheridan is also heading off station with Delta Wing to investigate some unusual sightings. When questioned by Ivanova about his, you know, how wise it is for him to go off um, and do this, uh, he unfortunately seals his fate by saying, I'll be in and out in an hour. What could go wrong? Man, that's two. Both of them should know better than that. Yeah, buddy, buddy, God, no. Yeah, it's so bad. Buddy, no. Um, so sure enough, uh, when when Sheridan and the Star Fury Squadron get to Sector 92, where the unusual sightings have occurred, they are joined by a strange ship that emerges from hyperspace and that, that then beats the shit out of all of their ships. Sheridan manages to eject in time, All but one of the others are destroyed. Lieutenant Ramirez's ship is disabled, uh, but Ramirez gets to see Sheridan's ejection pod be beamed on board the strange ship. 
It also turns out that Ramirez's ship is not just disabled, it is leaking radiation at terminal levels and the comms are down. He heads back to the jump gate to bring the news of Sheridan's abduction back to the station. Back on the station, it turns out that we do have a special guest, this time General Haig himself, who meets with Ivanova and is surprised that Sheridan isn't there to greet him. Ivanova and Haig are unable to contact Sheridan, but Ramirez's star fury comes through the jump gate. After a scan reveals the dire state of the ship and its pilot, uh, it's brought in and Ramirez is rushed to MedLab. Franklin does his best, but lethal radiation poisoning is uh, pretty lethal unless you are James Holden on The Expanse, I guess. <laughs> Ramirez did succeed in his goal, though. The Star Fury data logs show Sheridan's abduction, so now, uh, now Ivanova and Haig know what happened. So that's good, I guess. Sheridan, meanwhile, has not been having a good time. He wakes strapped to a table with an alien medical device that definitely did not give me nightmares as a child or to this day, worrying <laughs> overhead. It retracts and a metal bar drops to the ground next to the table. He manages to free himself from the restraints and grab the bar just in time for a Drazi to enter the room and attack. The Drazi doesn't respond to any of Sheridan's attempts to communicate and ultimately ends up impaled on his own weapon, only to be immediately replaced by a Narn with a sword. Sheridan has, at this point, noticed a pattern, a alien device on the head of each combatant. He defends himself against the Narn and knocks him unconscious. On the Grey Council ship, Delenn finds out that she has been voted off the council, but does manage to make a speech asking for them to allow her to finish what she started on B5. The new council member speaks up and turns out to be a familiar face, Nehrun, who we last saw being angry at Sinclair over a missing Mimbari corpse. This has skewed the council balance. Three worker, two religious, and four warrior cast. Uh, this is theoretically to make up for the warrior cast losses during the Earth Mimbari War, which is bullshit. Nerun tells Delenn to go back to B5 and to stay there, and the council all leave the room, leaving Delenn alone. Delenn reunites to Lanier and the two depart, heading back to the station. Back with Sheridan, he has taken the device off the head of his new Narn friend, and the two chat. They seem to have been captured to be specimens so that their captors can learn strengths, weaknesses, fighting styles, etc. Sheridan starts planning an escape for the injured and currently unconscious Narn, um, but nods off to find himself in a strange dreamscape. He sees a sequence of images, including Ivanova asking, Do you know who I am? And Garibaldi saying, The man in between is searching for you. And finally, Kosh, who cryptically implies that this is less dream and more telepathic message from the Vorlon. Waking up, Sheridan glances at the Narn's sword, and a plan starts to form. At B5, the Agamemnon, Sheridan's old ship, joins Ivanova and Haig in staging a rescue attempt for Sheridan. Delenn and Lanier make contact with the station and are also informed of Sheridan's abduction. When Ivanova sends her the information, Delenn informs the others that the species responsible is in fact known to the Mimbari, and that the Mimbari have previously whooped their asses for doing precisely this stunt in the past. Sheridan and the Narn are now working on their escape plan, using the Narn's sword to lever up the door. The ship jolts, and Sheridan suspects that they've jumped out of hyperspace, then jolts again as the Agamemnon and Star Furies attack. This is just the distraction that Sheridan and the Narn need to escape the room and head to a survival pod. 
Just in time, too, the ship's response to Delenn's demand to release the captives was to release them into space, <laughs> uh, prompting the Agamemnon to blow the ship to hell. They find Sheridan's signal from the escape pod, and everybody heads back to the station. As Sheridan is recovering in his quarters, Haig arrives and activates a bug jammer. Their conversation reveals that Sheridan is well aware of the fact that Santiago was assassinated um, and that Haig seems to be planning a information gathering slash question marks um, slash trying to get Clark out of power. Sheridan pledges to use the resources of B5 to help Haig reveal the truth and retake Earth's government. After Haig leaves, Sheridan brings Garibaldi, Franklin, and Ivanova in on the conspiracy, and they pledge, wherever this goes, however it ends, we're with you. And that's the episode. Okay, first thing I want to get out of the way here. The alien ship is a cool design. It's asymmetrical. It looks weird. Um, it's got, like, little things sticking out at various points. Mm -hmm. The actual alien designs, we see them for, like, probably, like, three seconds on screen together, but are just clearly the most half-assed attempt. They are just <laughs> random-ass yeah. grays. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, it's the... So, no attempt. Uh, onto the actors they threw on, like, cloaks and, like, alien masks from the Halloween store. <laughs> and called it a day. Yeah. yeah, it's just, we only ever see one of them. And, yeah. Um, it's... And for, for, like, five seconds as Sheridan knocks him out. Yeah. Uh, I have other beef with this episode uh, that I'd like to throw out early. And that is that there is no shitty mall katana on the, in any galaxy that could lever open a door without snapping into 8 million pieces. And shitty mall katana is exactly what that Narn is carrying. It, it's a little bit, it's a, it, it's a little bit different model. Yeah. He is carrying a shitty mall scimitar. This time. Yeah, he's got a oh, scimitar. It's a mall the, scimitar. The Mall Katana return. The, the, he will change swords when he revisits us in season three, and he will then have a shitty Mall Katana. Well, clearly it's because Sheridan bent the shit out of his <laughs> Mall uh, scimitar, and he went home and watched some anime and decided the Mall Katana was more of his aesthetic. Uh, fun fact: the guy that plays that Narn is the same one who played the guy that got turned into a uh, a. a plant meat robot in like the third episode you remember that guy oh yeah God, wow really wild we're gonna wild. call back to that alien fascist bioweapon at uh two episodes yeah we, we we do get to learn in this episode that um baseball major league baseball is still played in the 23rd century which is i think optimistic <laughs> um um the los angeles dodgers are given a uh they are given a direct reference on screen and they are in the playoffs against a team from mars how do they make that work yeah i know because the travel times would be a bitch you know this would be like major league baseball having a team in like madagascar yeah well it would be like playing an actual world series uh, and not the Amerocentric version of it that we have today yeah. and including Japan. Yeah. And trying to like yeah. fly teams back and forth across the Pacific for the playoffs. But what we do learn, however, is that because Mars has super low gravity, it is basically like playing in the steroids era all the time on Mars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which has been the that was what I was really asking. Like 
travel times or whatever. I don't care about that. I'm asking like, how do you even remotely try and reconcile stat- statistics or oh. have a team that plays oh. primarily on Mars? It sounds like they just don't. It sounds like they that <laughs> yeah. they just didn't. Nobody just thought of that. Like the biggest asterisk. And, oh God, baseball nerds be so mad about that. Like, Good. like even in like less gravity, like if you're playing in a regulation, like if you're play, like a, you know, depends on what they've changed or whatever. We'll see a batting practice at some mm-hmm. point later this season. That that we'll, we will get to that. We will. I will rip it to that seat when we get to it. Believe you me. Uh, <laughs> what if they just multiply everything by the amount that gravity is less on Mars? So like Gosh. the bases just, are just, just times that... that much further away and the field is that much bigger. I just like have everything thing. be 40% bigger. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. It's like the, it's like playing on a giant. Uh, it's like little kids playing on an adult field. <laughs> I'd watch that. Meanwhile, meanwhile, <laughs> I enjoyed this as like one of the few references that we have of like not everything being at one point OG. Yeah, yeah, and like actually acknowledging that Mars is at you know point point six G. The station itself also is around point six. So. There's that. Yeah. I don't remember what episode it's in, but one of the episodes in Lurker's Guide has a section where JMS is trying to defend uh, something baseball related. <laughs> Nerd. I mean, realistically, we like if, if, if Major League Baseball survives the 21st century, I will be actually impressed, but yeah. um, I will thankfully not be alive to have to up that bet. I do think this is like it's it's sort of fun that we get like an alien race in this in this episode that isn't like an ancient and mysterious race they're just a bunch of nerds who live in their basement who come out to abduct people and the last time they did this them and body were like fuck no and just body slammed them back into the basement yeah yeah no i love that delen hears about it she's like these fucks it's so yeah. good it's like it's one of those things of just like oh no you guys have just been had yeah also also the show loves doing callbacks to alien abduction stories yeah because we've got the we've got the beam of bright light we've got the like roswell gray looking fuckers yeah we have that like alien scissor knife spinny thing that haunts my dreams yeah yeah i like the fact that every now and then we do get a reminder like we're the show does a lot of tell like tell don't show that the minbari are like so much older than everyone else you know like we're always told oh they're like they've been in space like a thousand years longer than everyone else their tech is so much better and other than having like big fuck ass fish ships that nobody can seem to fuck with. Like <laughs> you don't always see that. And this is a nice, a nice demonstration where they're like, Delenn rolls up and just like, yes, we see like one of these things where they just know this, this race, just yeah. a, 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 a consequence of being, having been around the block for the last thousand years as a spacefaring race, they know like practically everybody. Um, and I like that. That's a nice touch that does give you a sense of how old the Minbari are, that they've just been around and they've seen all these, these chuckle fucks once before and they, they know how to deal with them. I thought that was a nice touch. 
Yeah, there, there's some really solid Delenn content here. Um, her speech to the Grey Council is very good. All Delenn speeches are good. There's there's a lot of good linear content as well. God, they're so good in this episode. He's a good boy. And, and I really... There's those scenes after she comes out of the Grey Council chamber and meets up with Lanier. And you can tell... And she and Lanier's like, oh, Satai Delenn. And she's like, no, just just Delenn now. And you can tell that she's just like heartbroken over this. And Lanier is trying so hard to cheer her up and be like, the council is very wise. Like, it all must have happened for a reason, probably, right? And it's like, oh, buddy. Yeah, he's he's very good. I really enjoy when Lanier is trying to be his naive, like, innocent self, but also, like, in a world that has no room for someone that pure. And yeah, the times when he manages to stick that landing are always really refreshing. But I like that yeah. the show doesn't let him, doesn't let it work all the time. Like, that's a, that's kind of a tricky balance to, 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 to do with a character. Like, how often do you let that character like work? And Lanier is a really great example of like how to manage that character. Mm. I think Veer is another is a great character to have next to him in the same show because Lanier is the one that like manages it pretty well, manages to maintain some of that innocence. And Veer is the one who does it. Veer is the one who's gets just crushed more often than not for being that for being that personality. Whereas Lanier yeah. gets to be that way. I really like this episode. I really like as well the... It's got some really solid plot bits. Um, yeah. So for one thing we have, like, I always forget that the Kosh dream sequence is in this episode. Yeah. And that's yeah. such a huge dream. That dream sequence is... It sets up the next two seasons. Yeah. And it like every every frame of that dream sequence is weighty. Like... Every frame of that dream sequence is is saying something and will be yeah. flashed back to throughout the next two seasons. Yeah. And and it all gets it all gets used. Um and I mean some of it doesn't pay off. Like the the man in between doesn't pay off into until season four. Yeah. So that's that's wild. And just getting more kosh content. I'm I'm always here for. I also uh, we're getting pretty thick with the whole like Earth politics plot thing with Haig visiting kind of off the books, um, and the formation of the kind of actual conspiracy of light, shall we call it? Perhaps <laughs> that's what it's called within the show. At some point, that's that's really kicked off at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that scene also the the scene where Haig visits visits Sheridan in his quarters is also wild because it it starts out with leading the viewer. Yeah, they pull a little bit of a reversal. <laughs> yeah, because it starts out with like Sheridan saying, you know, they're good people. I don't want to be spying on them. Um, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? And then, and then it's revealed that basically, like, the spine has been figuring out whether they're in Clark's pocket, 
but it's still like it's it's a record scratch moment for us as the viewers. Yeah. We also get textual confirmation that Sheridan was put in because everybody thinks that he's a hard-nosed jarhead that he's not but that everybody thinks that he is it's just like has anybody in earth force ever actually talked to sheridan so my, i mean no he's been on the rim so here's yeah, my theory yeah, here's my theory hague i think hague probably is responsible for this yeah because hague knows sheridan and knows what kind of a man he is and says when the appointment for B5 comes up, he looks at Sheridan's file and sees Starkiller and all this stuff. And he's just like, whoop, just slides it into the stack. Yeah. And knows they're going to look at this and they're going to see Starkiller. All, just, they're just going to look at the file. But he's been out on the rim for fuck knows however long. Nobody, <laughs> nobody in the room actually knows him except for Haig. Haig knows what kind of a man he is. They're just looking mm-hmm. at him on paper. And so they go, hey, you know him. And he and he's just like, well, whatever. He's, you know, he's the star killer. Mer, mer. And they're going to be like, well, Hague doesn't like him. And he's, he, he took down the Minbari. He's a war hero. And yeah. And then Clark, who's sitting at the end yeah, of the table, we'll, he's we'll like, put, we'll put him in there and that'll show the Minbari who's, who's who. Yeah. Yeah. All Clark sees is the, the middle finger to the Minbari and it's a done deal. Meanwhile, meanwhile, two weeks into the posting, um, B five, we get Sheridan with a like, like physical, like beating heart yeah. animation. Dunk, 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 dunk. <laughs> uh, as he looks at Delenn for the first time. Yeah. Whoops. So, so something that I th- that I just like thought of is this the first time we see an Earth ship in combat with an alien ship in this show? Maybe. Quite possibly. Yeah, because it's like the because it, it, I was like, I'm like, I don't remember. It's like I don't like yeah. I think like the only other time we've seen like an Earth cruiser even like in position to fire was uh a voice in the wilderness. Yeah. Which I don't think it actually yeah. even shot anything. It was just like we're getting ready to blow this shit up. And then it's like that thing did pretty easy work on the what are they called? The Shrive or whatever something the like Strive. that. The scribe. I have a little thing that I'd like to point out as something I really like. Um, since we we actually see Ivanova in a Star Fury in this episode, and this this emphasizes something that I love about this show is that everybody has their own Star Fury and like helmet and stuff, and like like Ivanova's got like a. Fucking like a Russian star on it. Yeah, here's this here's a super fucking Russian. She has she has a black star inset on a white star inset and a red star, and that is all overlaid over a over like a, a like a Russian eagle. Yeah, it's it's great, and it really um it feel it, it feels really like a callback to like what people actually do with their you know fighter planes. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, th- th- that's, um, I mean, we don't, like, I don't think we... What does Sheridan have? Do we... uh, let's see, let's see, Sheridan Star Fury. I, I, it doesn't survive the episode, but let's see. Uh, like, it's always Ivanova's that makes me go like, oh yeah, they have that thing. So, I'm just doing a quick Google here. This might not be the one that's in this episode. I don't think we see it, but it has, but it's a, uh, it's a tiger. That's lame. Interesting. I feel like if it were actually Sheridan's 
before this incident, maybe it was a tiger, but afterwards it would definitely definitely be some Minbari weavy stuff. <laughs> we don't really see this in B5 at least, but there's definitely like, there's that whole thing of like, a military will attempts to de-individualize people just because it's convenient for them. And so like, th- like Nozar is one way we see like people reasserting that. Uh, a show that actually does this really well is the Clone Wars cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because it is a show about, it is a show that is, I would say 60% about people who don't have identity self-creating them within that military environment. And so I always find like Nozar and like that stuff. That's super cool. Um, yeah. And that's something I, uh, that's something I love that they included in this show. I'm imagining now Sheridan getting Lanier to like airbrush some kind of Minbari sweet Minbari bird or something onto his star <laughs> fury for him to impress Delenn. <sighs> Or just a bunch of crystals. It's just a bunch no, of it's, crystals. No, it's absolutely he. He absolutely asks Lanier what his what Delenn's favorite like bird analog from Minbar is, and then he he airbrushes on like a crystalline version of it on on his. Oh no! Starfire. Oh no! I love this. I love this. Head cannon. I've also I've also got one last thing on here, which is um, one of my pedantic nitpicks about this episode. When Ramirez's Star Fury gets um, damaged, um, he brings up the computer and it tells him that radiation levels are 35% higher than normal. And then he asks, you know, how long until it reaches terminal levels? And it says it's already reached terminal levels. How much radiation are these things spewing out normally? If 35% above, like, I understand that radiation exposure is cumulative, but if it's 30, like, if it was 35% above and he'd been in that thing for, like, eight hours, maybe, but it's been five minutes. Yeah, no, that, th- this episode plays pretty fast, at least, with uh, radiation. I just, I just assume that, like, star theories are, like, the equivalent to, like, how we originally imagine warplanes in world war one which is we are going to make a flying kite strap a 120 horsepower engine to it and slap a couple machine guns on it and i just imagine a star fury is like the space equivalent of that (laughs) well like i'm not questioning that if something goes wrong with the fusion reactor of one of those things it is deeply unhealthy forever for whoever is uh flying it very quickly i'm questioning the 35 percent Oh uh, yeah, that's that's a... because if it was like thirty five, maybe they meant to say thirty five times. Yeah, maybe. But if it's one point three five times, then like everybody's getting a lethal dose every time they like strap into one of those fuckers. Thirty five percent of all statistics mentioned in Babylon Five are wrong. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I take offense to that as a statistician. <laughs> uh... I got anything else we want to talk about this episode? That that was it for me. That was my last nitpick of the day. Yeah, I don't have anything else about it. I don't think we have any super notable actors who aren't, like, returning from before. Oh, no, uh, we do have one from Gropos. Uh, The actor who played uh, Daddy Franklin, Paul Winfield, was in Star Trek Wrath of Khan. I like that you call him Daddy Franklin. (laughs) I I feel like that's a win for me in this episode. Honestly, I'm I'm, I'm just going to give it to you. (laughs) 
Okay, so next time we are going to be covering episodes 12 and 13, Acts of Sacrifice and Hunter Prey. We're halfway through the season, y'all. Until next time, be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.